This podcast is recorded in 2022. Today, we'll go through the presentation of gout and why it was historically known as the rich man's disease. We'll also cover why we almost never do a uric acid level during the acute phase and why maybe a joint aspirate is not quite as relevant as you might think. Welcome to Pabble Pods for Docs. My name is Sophia, and in today's podcast, we will be covering the topic of gout. For visual aids on today's topic, head over to our website at pabble.com for high-yield revision notes and a question bank. Today, we are very fortunate to be joined by a famous Plabable owner, Z, who works as a GP. Welcome, Z, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Sophia. I, I really like this topic, gout, because we come across it very frequently. We probably see it once a week. And gout is just one of those bread and butter things that all GPs know about because we handle gout uh, more than our secondary care colleague. Okay, so now we know how relevant gout is, let's move on to make sure that we all know what we're talking about when it comes to the basics. So gout essentially is a result of the deposition of crystals in the joints, and these are urate crystals. And these form typically due to raised uric acid levels. And this is relevant when we come on to investigations later on. Crystals tend to form in cooler joints. So these are joints far away from the core of your body. And um, these are things like in your toes uh, more commonly and also potentially in your upper extremity as well. The crystals can also form in your urinary tracts and in your connective tissue too. Typically, when we talk about gout, we're referring to the joint arthropathy it causes. It's worth noting that people can have high uric acid levels, also known as hyperuricemia, but they might not actually have gout. So these things don't always necessarily go hand in hand, but high uric acid levels is the most common risk factor for gout. So they are definitely linked. Can you touch on the risk factors that predispose people to gout? Of course. So the main one, the main risk factor, like you mentioned, Sophia, that is the raised uric acid levels, right? If, if, you've, if you can't remember anything else, that's the one to always focus on. Other risk factors include if you're male. And in fact, like you said before, Sophia, this is the rich man's disease. Why it's called the rich man's disease is because in the olden times, and I'm talking about centuries ago, uh, rich men were usually obese. Uh, they had lots of alcohol. They ate lots of red meat. They never exercised. And, you know, so th those are the risk factors for gout. Rich, obese, alcohol, red meat. So one classic example is Henry VIII. Um, he suffered with gout many, many times in the 16th century. Picture that in your head, yeah, rich man's disease. Of course, in today's age, uh, being rich is not a risk factor, but you have, you have other things to, to, work, to, to think about, things like uh, uh, seafood, yeah, that's a common risk factor as well. So shellfish is one of those things that can precipitate gout. Um, a family history of gout as well, dyslipidemia, diabetes, hypertension, all these are risk factors as well. All right, so let's move on to think about the clinical presentation. So we already have that image in our mind of Henry VIII. That's a really useful one to come on to. Um, but let's, let's go through a scenario like we normally do in these podcasts. 
So our patient's going to be called Henry because we keep on that theme. So Henry is 75 years old, he's male, and he attends your GP complaining of this unbearable pain in the first toe, so the great toe on his left foot. And this only started about a day ago. Um, he shows you his toe and the base of it seems really red, really swollen, and it's very acutely tender to, to touch when you have a feel. He doesn't complain of any pain in any other joints and otherwise feels quite well in himself. And one of his regular medications is indapamide. So Z, what are your standout points in this history that makes gout a differential for you? And what other information do you want from this guy? Sophia, lovely questions there. Yes, you're absolutely right. Many points to be picked up on this stem or this vignette. The first one is that it's monoarticular. So it's affecting one joint. It's acute because it's less than a day. The appearance is very much like gout. You have the redness, it's swollen. And if you look at where it is, it's at the first metatarsophalangeal joint, the first MTP joint, which is the most common place for gout. In fact, about 50 to 75% of all gout happens at that specific joint. And if you look back at, at the medications he's taking as well, indapamide. So that's something to think about as well because thiazide diuretics are a risk factor. Uh, they can precipitate gout. So the questions that I would ask this specific patient is, is this the first time? Because you know, um, gout can happen at the same joint or at different joints uh, multiple times. Uh, I would ask about the frequency, the duration of the attacks, being mindful that acute gout tends to peak around 48 hours and tends to sort of fade down and, and, and eases off within two weeks. And rarely do you get acute gout lasting more than two weeks. Previous medication is one thing that you would always ask, right? So um, as, uh, as you can see, this patient's on a thiazide diuretic. Uh, that's a very classic example that is seen in exam questions, right? They add in either indapamide or bendroflumitiazide as a thiazide diuretic, uh, or they might use a loop diuretic and they will throw in furosemide in the history to sort of point to you that is a medication there that can raise uric acid and precipitate gout. So just like with most things in medicine, alongside your history, which is the most important part and um, examinations another really key part of your consultation with the patient so i'm just going to run through the key things that are worth noting when examining someone with gout so when you're looking at the joint in question as these mentioned it's often a monoarticular presentation so that means one joint and um, so this joint will tend to be red swollen um, and there'll be pain even on passive movements so that's when you're just moving that joint for them it's really important, as, as far as differentials are concerned, to be thinking about septic arthritis in someone presenting like this. You want to make sure that you exclude septic arthritis, be that in your history examination or your investigations, before you go ahead and treat. So as we've already covered, gout typically affects the first metatarsal phalangeal joint. So that's you know, obviously the, the base of your great toe. So that's something that you would see on examination as well. Um, but it can also affect other small distal joints like the ankles. When you're examining joints, and th this is key when it comes to exams and OSCEs and things like that, 
it's important that you're considering or you do examine other joints around that joint as well to make sure that the presentation very much is monoarticular, so just in that one joint. Something that is um, unique to gout as well is the presence of things called TOFI. And these are subcutaneous nodules. So they sit just under the skin and they look kind of pearly and white. And um, these normally occur in people who've had the disease for a long time. And you tend to see them in places like the elbows, on your knees, so extensor areas. But people can also get them on their ears as well. But they're not painful. They can just be associated with gout. So these can appear in vignettes or in Oronofsky's as well. So um, let's move on to diagnosis. So Z, what tests would you do in the patient in our scenario in Henry? I would do nothing. I would do no investigations at all. So remember that gout in most cases is, um, is diagnosed based on the patient's symptoms. We don't tend to do any diagnostic tests. Uh, you know, it sounds like gout. It's probably gout. Let's go with gout is, is what we normally would do. Um, gout has a very typical history. Remember, sudden onset, acute pain, one joint, usually peaks at 48 hours, subsides one to two weeks later. Um, and I think the joint, the fact that the joint is the MTP joint is, is telling me that, look, this is gout. Of course, um, gout can also affect other uh, joints like the knee, the wrists, the fingers, the ankles, and the midfoot as well. And like you said, you've got to also think about other differentials such as septic arthritis. Um, now that's one of the big ones that you, you, you don't want to miss. And so there are reasons where you would investigate. And that's when you're unsure. If you're not sure that this is gout, and I'll give you an example here. Let's say it's a knee joint, his first presentation, he's systemically unwell. And, and I'll never really say the word fever because septic arthritis can also occur without the, without the fever element. So just bear that in mind, right? If it's somewhere else, you know, knee, ankle, wrist joint, first time, you're thinking, gosh, could this be septic arthritis? That's when you sort of get your secondary care colleagues in. You know, you refer him in to A&E or you get him to see a rheumatologist. And they, because they're more experienced, would evaluate the need for a joint aspirate microscopy. So this is what you learn in your textbooks, right? The gold standard investigation that looks at the urate crystals in the joints. Uh, and the, the key phrase that you would see in your textbooks or in the exams and what you're looking for when you do a joint aspirate microscopy is the monosodium urate crystals that are needle shape. Like I said, although it's the gold standard, it's almost never done. Why is that? Because people with gout don't go to A&E. They tend to just walk into their GPs. And GPs because we see gout so often, we tend to uh, diagnose gout and send them home with pain relief or advice on how to prevent gout. Um, now, we wouldn't do a joint aspirate microscopy in our GP clinic for a few reasons. The first one is that, you know, it takes a lot of time. Our appointments are 10 minutes long. In fact, sometimes even shorter. So we don't have necessarily have a lot of time to do a joint aspirate. Um, secondly, it's very painful, right? If you're pretty sure it's gout, why are you sort of 
putting a needle into the place that's painful already, trying to make a diagnosis. It doesn't quite make sense, right? I think the patient would be like, you know, I'm happy not to have a needle in my, my big toe. Let me just go home with pain relief and see, see how it goes. Now, the third reason why we generally don't do a joint aspirate is because false negative results can be seen if the sample takes too long to reach the lab. Now, in the GP clinic, you're not going to have someone that walks to the lab in the hospital. It's far away from the hospital. You know, you need a potter to get there. You, you, if you take the sample today, the potter comes tomorrow, that's it. You're going to get a false negative result. So what's the point of doing a joint aspirate when you can't get it into the lab in time? So for that reason, although it's a gold standard, it's rarely done. The only reason that you do it, it's in the hospital. And if septic arthritis is really up there on, on your differential list. Um, yeah, so that's what you do in the acute phase, right? Now, you can do bloods, but you generally don't do it in the acute phase. So you can request things like serum uric acid, uh, but you do it four to six weeks after the acute event. You don't do it earlier because it can be falsely low. Why? It's because all the uric acid has formed crystals and the, the level of the uric acid has dropped because of formed crystals. So don't do it in the acute phase. Do it four to six weeks later. And even if it's not incredibly high, still think about gout because like you said, Sophia, um, you know, you can still have gout even though you have a normal uric acid. So like I said, we don't advocate doing a uric acid during an attack. But if for any reason you did do a uric acid level during an acute attack, if that level has come back elevated, that would help you with your diagnosis of gout. The last investigation that you would think of is a joint x-ray. You tend to reserve this for the people who are suffering with chronic disease, you know, uh, gout in the same joint multiple times, because firstly, you want to know how damaged the joint already is. Secondly, you want to look for any other reasons of typical chronic inflammation. So when you do a, an x-ray, you, you tend to see punched out erosions and sclerotic margins, which are very typical for chronic gout. Now, that being said, Punched out erosions are, are seen in several other chronic diseases as well, such as rheumatoid arthritis, you would see this. Uh, so don't just think it's only for gout, but it helps gives you the idea that, ah, you know, that one joint always happens in that joint. I think it's, it's gout, all right? Uh, yeah, so those are the investigations, Sophia. Which is quite a list, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so we, we've already touched on septic arthritis being a really important differential to exclude with, with diagnosing gout. But what, what other differentials could you be considering in someone with a similar presentation? So you could think of pseudogout as well. Now, I don't think this is going to be clinically relevant because uh, the treatment's pretty much the same, right? So you wouldn't necessarily do anything differently if you thought it was pseudogout. Uh, the only real way to identify gout and pseudogout is if you do a joint aspirate anyway. In terms of pseudogout, I would say you don't really need to think about it, um, but you, you might want to think of other things, uh, things like uh, whether it's osteoarthritis, for example. Um, and that's typically 
you know what you see in the exam right they try to make you think of is this osteoarthritis is this gout are you going to put a for osteoarthritis are you going to put b for gout um, given that they they show a picture of a uh, a finger that's swollen uh, on the uh, you know especially the picture shows the distal interphalangeal joint and it is it's described as painful stiff swollen red and in those cases, you're absolutely right to think, is this gout, is this osteoarthritis? And the only real way to identify if it's gout or osteoarthritis in the exam scenario is to look at the duration. And I want to really, really stress here what I said earlier. Rarely does gout present longer than two weeks. So if you're talking about someone having this uh, redness and swelling of his distal interphalangeal joint for months, it's, it's going to be osteoarthritis, right? It's not going to be gout if it's for months. I, I think I, I've written a question on this, uh, on the question bank. So you might want to check on this as well. I think it's a really good example of differentiating osteoarthritis uh, from gout. And you, know, you can look at that by typing in the, the question code RH1101 on the Plavable question bank. Okay, so up until now, we very much um, split gout into what is the acute phase and the more kind of chronic uh, part of the condition. And we're going to kind of bring that theme forward into the management of the condition. So the management of gout, we're going to split into what we do acutely and what we do more long term. So let's start with acute Z. How do you manage patients who are in the midst of a flare-up? The best advice is rest, eyes, and elevate. That's probably what Henry VIII would have done because he didn't have any medications. It's just going to be rest. I don't, I'm not even sure if he, if he had eyes, Sophia. He probably just said rest and elevation and that's it. But in today's world, we have a lot of medications as well. So typically, when we see patients with gout, we prescribe them either NSAIDs with a PPI, a proton pump inhibitor to cover uh, the gastric lining, right? Or we prescribe colchicine. Um, now, uh, NICKS doesn't give a preference between the two. In America, for example, they sort of point towards naproxen being slightly more advantageous compared to colchicine. Uh, I, I don't think in any exam question is going to ask you to choose between the two. So either NSAIDs or colchicine. Uh, paracetamol is always helpful for any pain. So that's something to think about as well. And of course, for those rare people that cannot take NSAIDs or colchicine for any reason, then you would consider things like oral steroids or intraarticular steroids as well, all right? Uh, you do not prescribe allopurinol in the acute phase. Don't even bother with it because allopurinol is to prevent gout, not to treat acute gout. But if the patient was already on allopurinol, not that you started him on, but he's really on it before he got this gout attack, then don't bother stopping it. Just continue his allopurinol, all right? So typically we try to get the symptoms under control within about, you know, 48 hours in an acute fare with, with treatment like this. And if it's not getting under control within that kind of period of time, it might be worth reconsidering whether you have the correct diagnosis or explore some of those differentials that we talked about earlier. Um, is there any follow-up that you should be thinking about doing Z after an acute episode of gout? So um, 
Yeah, you generally like to follow them up around uh, six weeks. And you, you want to focus on trying to give them advice on how to prevent future gout. So you want to discuss dietary information like uh, avoid excessive consumption of alcohol, avoid shellfish, avoid your red meat, your steaks, for example. Um, and then you you probably want to check on their bloods because remember you you would request a uric acid at four to six weeks. Not only will you be doing your uric acid, you'll be doing things like a HbA1c, you'll be doing lipids, you'll be doing uh, urea and electrolytes as well. So you'll be doing a number of tests. Uh, uric acid remains the, the top of the things that you need to do. Uh, the rest of them are mainly to look at controlling other diseases. Remember, like I said, uh, dyslipidemia and diabetes are risk factors. So if you try and control those, perhaps you might reduce the chances of another gout attack. Okay, so we've covered what we do acutely. Um, there are ways of preventing gout attacks from reoccurring in the future. Z, what methods do we have to reduce the likelihood of another attack of gout? So allopurinol, that is the one drug that you need to remember. And for the exam purposes, it's probably the only drug you need to remember that, that, that lowers your uric acid. All right. And so this is one that you would start after the acute attack, not during the acute attack. Now, people tend to ask, when will you start allopurinol? After the first attack, after the second attack, after the third attack? There isn't a real good answer here. You can start it after the first attack. And evidence shows that great, if you do start it after the first attack, uh, you probably reduce the risk of osteoarthritis because every time you have an attack, you increase the chances of that joint being damaged by osteoarthritis. The challenge is, it's not always easy to tell your patients, ah, you got one episode of gout, lasted two days. Now I plan to start you on a medication called allopurinol that you're going to take for the rest of your life. So it's not easy to, to have that discussion with that patient. You know? um, and so many of us GPs don't tend to start it until you know, second, third attack because it has to be in the patient's mind that, gosh, I need to reduce these attacks. Uh, and that's why I'm taking this for the rest of my life. If, I, if they only had one attack and you told them to start a medication uh, for the rest of their life, compliance is going to be an issue. I, I doubt they will want to take this one tablet every day for the rest of their life if they've only suffered with this one condition for two days. If you did start allopurinol, you would uh, co-prescribe it with colchicine once daily or twice daily for the next six months. Why? It's because when you start allopurinol, the chances of an attack is higher. So that's why you co-prescribe it with colchicine. Um, and then you, you can titrate the allopurinol up as well every four weeks. But I'm not going to go into too much detail there because I don't think it's going to be required for any of your exams. Um, so we'll skip the titration bit. Uh, and we're going to skip the second line as well because I don't think anyone needs to know that for the exams. Uh, and again, remember, allopurinol isn't something you use for a year and then you stop. Isn't it something you use for two years and then you stop? No, it's for the duration of your life. Brilliant. Okay. 
So we've we've got both of our approaches. Then we've got our acute phase approach to treatment, and then we've also got our kind of maintenance. But as you said, you know, it's it's lifelong treatment that. And um, so before we finish, see, have you got any kind of take home messages that you really want people to remember from this podcast? Remember that uh, gold standard joint aspiration, but rarely done. Uric acid never do it in the acute phase. Um, remember that. Uh, the treatments, you know, you, you've got your NSAIDs, your colchicine, and remember that, you know, the medications that help prevent gout, which is allopurinol. And of course, the diet, the exercise, all those methods as well. Okay, brilliant. So I think that's it for today. Thank you so much to Z for joining us. And thank you to you all for listening. We hope today's discussion has been helpful. To test your application of today's knowledge, head over to our website at plavable.com for an extensive question bank and revision note resource. We'll see you next time.